God was a dying art. Who the hell reads their mail anymore, they said. All the real suckers are on Craigslist, eBay, Facebook, Yahoo, Tumblr, OkCupid, Chatroulette. But I didn't listen. I hated computers, and I liked licking stamps. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime, they said. But still I didn't listen. Next thing I knew, I was emptying my pockets and being tested for TB and venereal disease during intake at the federal prison camp at Dadeland Mall. The FPC Dadeland was a minimum security facility. All inmates could freely roam the mall during regular mall hours, but our ankle monitors caused Dadeland sound system to play Don Henley's The Boys of Summer if we wandered into the parking lot. We were mostly non-violent offenders, tax evaders, Ponzi and pyramid schemers, whippet heads, check kiters, backroom dentists, but of course there were always a few who slipped through the cracks. Juan Elrata Veracruz was doing 10 to 15 for driving his leaned Corolla over a repo man. He was assigned to work detail in AX Armani Exchange and was November's Employee of the Month. My detail was in the food court. Monday through Thursday, I manned the register at Johnny Rockets, and Fridays, I worked the opening shift at Chick-fil-A. All prisoners received vouchers for three food court meals a day, but there were lots of restrictions, like only nine-grain wheat bread at Subway, or no baklava or mamul at Mr. Kibba, or a two-churro limit at Churromania. Of course, those of us behind the counter met the rules for our buddies all the time, but we had to be careful. Big Leonard got caught letting a bunch of inmates drink orange Fanta straight from the Johnny Rocket soda fountain, and the warden threw him in the hole for a week. The warden was in his seventh year at Dadeland. He came from grapefruit money and often sucked on not-quite-ripe ruby-red grapefruits while strolling past Dadeland's department stores, boutiques, and kiosks. Always fastidiously dressed, he thought orange jumpsuits tacky and purchased our uniforms in bulk from Abercrombie & Fitch. Still, even in our striped polos and skinny chinos, we stood out from similarly attired, unimprisoned shoppers. They roamed the tiled floors of Dadeland by choice, not judicial order, their eyes twinkling with carefree, unencumbered consumerism, undimmed, as ours were dimmed, by the prospect of five more years of zombie walking purposelessly past Gap Kids and Bath and Body Works and Mandarin Express. Also, their ankles weren't electronically monitored. The Boys of Summer, to them, was just background music, the official soundtrack of Eau de Toilettes and Relaxed Fit Pants, Don Henley's mid-80s Grammy-winning hit, indistinguishable from Boz Skaggs' Lowdown, Phil Collins' Susudio, REO Speedwagon's Can't Fight This Feeling, 
stings if you love somebody set them free after 9:30 p.m. when the mall closed and the shoppers returned to their Kendall condos and Pinecrest compounds and Coral Gables stuccoed Mediterranean revivals all inmates reported to their quarters for nightly roll call we slept in dormitory-style bunk rooms located in what used to be the second floor of Macy's Kitchen Home. Each room contained two beds, a toilet, a sink, and a motivational poster. The motivational poster in my bunk room advertised a Grateful Dead concert at the Fillmore Auditorium on April 12, 1967. It didn't seem too motivational, but who was I to say? I was no expert on motivation, that was for sure. Lights out was at 11. We were supposed to sleep, but I could never sleep. As soon as the night guard hit the switch, all my mistakes and failures and regrets crawled out from the dark corners of my subconscious and salsa danced on my chest. Why hadn't I been a better student, a better citizen, a better son? Why hadn't I given my sweet Maria the life she deserved? Why hadn't I been more skilled, male fraud? When I couldn't sleep, I'd poke my bunkmate, Jean-Claude, and he'd harangue me in Creole. I didn't understand a word he said. I just liked the way his voice sounded when he lectured me, all tropical island sing-songy, like the sugary inveiglements of the sweet-smelling kiosk girls at Perfumania. Sometimes his voice put me to sleep, and sometimes it didn't. But at least it lightened the weight of the regrets and failures on my chest. Jean-Claude's detail was at the Beauty Salons of America hair spa. He was a genius with women's hair. Women would look in the mirror after Jean-Claude's masterful stylings and color treatments and weep. Thank you. Oh God, thank you, they'd say. I never knew I could look like this. I never knew I could be beautiful. It was really something. They'd hug him and stroke his face and kiss him on the lips. They'd all assure Jean-Claude they knew someone high up in immigration who could pull some strings and get him released, a green card, work in the most exclusive South Beach salons, but the strings never got pulled and Jean-Claude remained in Dateland, perming, plating, protesting my poking with his sing-song creole. What did he say to me? Who knows? I just focused on the sound of his voice. It was so nice, so pleasant. It made me wish I didn't speak any languages at all. What good had words ever done me anyway? What good had words done anyone? The best songs all went na 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 or la 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 or cha cha cha. Who needed words? Not me. All I needed was a lullaby. I threw the photographs in the water and watched them bleed into the colors red and brown and of course surrounded by blue.
were in here. They were ambassadors to the left-behind world we aspired to one day rejoin. After returning to the mall from the yard, we participated in a variety of religious and educational programs held in the food court until our 9.30 roll call. The prison offered AA, SA, and NA meetings, adult literacy classes, Bible, Torah, Quran, and Bhagavad Gita groups, and vocational courses in fields ranging from medical billing to home appliance repair to cosmetology to funerary science. I'd signed up for a course in business accounting, but the class was full and I was instead enrolled in an upper-level survey of post-war Soviet literature conducted entirely in Russian. I had no idea what my professor was saying, but I dutifully copied down every incomprehensible Cyrillic symbol he wrote on his transparencies just the same, then regurgitated them at random for homework, quizzes, essays, and exams. On my midterm report card, I received a nzachot. Though I couldn't say with 100% certainty if this was good or bad, I was not optimistic that it was good. Our families could visit us during regular mall hours. Some did and some didn't. Benny the Snake's mom bought Benny and Auntie Anne's jalapeno cheese pretzel dog every afternoon during her lunch break. No-Face Vasquez's mom screamed at No-Face in anguished, consonant-dropping Spanish for 30 minutes every morning. Jean-Claude's mom never visited him. She was probably either dead or still in Haiti. The warden's mom treated the warden to a bowl of Haagen-Dazs whenever she went handbag shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue or Nordstrom. She sure was a sucker for handbags. Not that it mattered. She was filthy rich with grapefruit money. Wives and girlfriends and boyfriends could visit us on weekends. For intimate visits, inmates and their lovers retired to the handicapped restrooms near the Cheesecake Factory or the dressing rooms of J. Crew and Taylor in Banana Republic. My sweet Maria never visited me though. We were through. Word on the street was she was now dating a macho from the DR who rode his motorcycle on the palmetto with a baby Burmese python wrapped around his neck. In happier times, my sweet Maria and I liked to feed the manatees in the little river. We weren't sure what manatees liked to eat, so we tossed them fruit salads, vegetable platters, and cheese plates to give them more options. From the prison yard, I could see the Snapper Creek Canal, and I wondered if the Snapper Creek manatees knew the Little River manatees, and if they did, were they enemies or friends? I hoped they were friends. I hoped the Little River manatees spoke highly of my sweet Maria and me, 
told all the other manatees about how generous we were with our fruit and vegetables and cheese. I hoped that Burmese python strangled my sweet Maria's macho on the palmetto and made him careen into a concrete construction barricade at 70 miles per hour. Who knew what sick things a guy like that was doing to my girl while I was in prison. I didn't like to think about it. But still, I thought about it. In prison, I was always doing things I didn't like to do. One thing I didn't like to do was go to the hole, but it was unavoidable. Sooner or later, everyone spent at least a day or two in the hole. Still, it wasn't as bad as it sounds. The bed was slightly less comfortable, and the hot water took longer to become hot, and you had to sort of jiggle the toilet's handle to get it to flush. But other than that, it was fine, and you got to sleep by yourself. Inmates whose bunkmates snored or talked in their sleep or repeatedly screamed in the middle of terrifying sheet-soaking dreams would violate prison rules all the time just to get a good night's sleep in the hole. Really, the only truly bad thing about the hole was the way the warden said it. You're going to the hole. He said it with such severity and disappointment. I know it made me feel really lousy whenever I got sent to the hole. I couldn't sleep at all. and There was no Jean-Claude to keep the regrets off my chest. You're going to the hole, said my regrets as they salsa danced on my sternum. Where did my regrets learn to dance like that? They didn't learn from me, that was for sure. I couldn't salsa dance a step, no matter how many times my sweet Maria tried to teach me. Look, it's easy, she always said, but it was never easy. That was just one of my many regrets. Lonely the light of my life, what's your sign, mine's the still life. Excuse me, miss, your pleasure is on top of my to-do list, I'm so sorry. Old tree. 
Even after four months at Dayland, I still wasn't sure where I fit into the prison hierarchy. At a maximum security prison, the social pyramid would have been clearly delineated. The bank robbers and drug kingpins were on top, and the rapists and child molesters were fending off shank attacks at the bottom. But we didn't have any drug lords or pedophiles, no sex offenders of any kind, and the closest thing we had to a bank robber was Cedar Rapids Brinkley, who blew out the engine of his mom's Oldsmobile Cutlass, dragging an ATM down Kendall Drive. At Johnny Rockets, my position in the doo-wop singing hierarchy was better established. I was the bass by virtue of my being the only one on staff who could hit the low E-flat on Blue Moon. The eldest of the hedge-funded bezeling tenors sang lead, but you could tell the younger hedge-funded bezeling tenor wasn't happy about it. His harmonies were always spiteful. The codeine trafficking baritone, on the other hand, was a consummate professional. He had sung backup vocals in an all-Cuban Leonard Skinner cover band before the feds caught wind of his improprieties with cough syrup. His band was called Pajaro Libre. They were planning on doing a reunion show when the baritone got out of prison and their original Ronnie Van Zant look-alike recovered from injuries suffered in a mango tree climbing accident. Possible venues included a quinceanera, a corporate awards dinner, and a middle school dance. For incarcerated felons, the embezzlers, the coding trafficker, and I were pretty decent doo-woppers. We sang all the standards, Shaboom, Book of Love, Earth Angel, Duke of Earl, but we also did originals. The younger embezzler, when not managing or mismanaging hedge funds, had been a quite prolific composer. All of his songs were about girls who had spurned his advances in high school in alphabetical order. He was currently writing Juliana. Juliana was next. There were a handful of minor celebrities incarcerated in Dadeland. After all, no one's perfect. Not even minor celebrities. One minor celebrity worked in the food court at Charlie's Grilled Subs. He had been a child actor, then became a former child actor, then became a serial panty snatcher, then became a product of the Florida penal system, and a Charlie's Grilled Subs cashier. As a child, he had played the character Little Jimmy on the popular mortuary sitcom Whose Teeth Are These. He had one of those faces. Sometimes people would remember him from being on TV as Little Jimmy from Whose Teeth Are These, and other times they'd remember him from being on TV as a serial panty snatcher. Another minor celebrity worked at Men's Warehouse and Tux. A 
few years back, he had made a sex tape with a popular CNN correspondent and had parlayed the resulting notoriety into a successful career as a Delhi lunch meat spokesman. There had been some public outcry at first, but the lunch meat bigwigs knew it would pass. They were no dopes. They knew sex sells. It even sells pimento loaf, bologna. People went crazy for that lunch meat. Customers were always saying the spokesman's catchphrase, Mmm, now that's meat, as he was fitting them for their tuxes. Just because an inmate was a minor celebrity didn't mean he was at the top of the prison hierarchy, however. Everyone liked the deli lunch meat spokesman because they were fans of his performance in the sex tape and the prison kickball league, but no one liked the former child actor. Prisoners threw soy sauce packets at him in the food court and pushed him in front of SUVs backing up in the prison yard all the time. It was a bum deal, but in the inmate's estimation, the former child actor was a bum. It was what it was. Whose teeth are these was not widely admired by the criminal element, and the general consensus was that panties were to be obtained consensually, but never snatched. I thought a lot about hierarchies while struggling to sleep, as Jean-Claude berated me beautifully in Creole. Why were we always categorizing each other, putting each other into boxes, labeling those boxes, organizing those labels by color, UPCA barcode, font serif, and best if used by date. In elementary school, I was categorized as a spaz, and a problem student, and a chronic bedwetter. In high school, I was categorized as a slacker, and a problem student, and a cystic acne sufferer. In my romantic relationships, I was categorized as a commitment-fearer and a responsibility-shucker and a possessor of limited earning potential. No one ever categorized me as a me. Not that I blame them. I don't think they even knew that me was a possible category. friends in prison. I had few friends outside of prison, too. The deli lunch meat spokesman got sackfuls of mail. The 17-year-old girl from Pembroke Pines was the president of his fan club, but all I ever got were collection notices and envelopes telling me just how much I could be saving on my car insurance. That always gave me a laugh. I didn't even know how to drive. My sweet Maria had to chauffeur me all around town in her Mitsubishi Galant, but not anymore. Now she was probably riding all hither, thither, and yon on the back of a motorcycle with that goddamn Dominican and his goddamn Burmese python. Jean-Claude was sort of my friend. He didn't like me poking him at night, but I think we had an understanding. I was also friends with the coding trafficker in my Johnny Rockets doo-wop quartet. He was a great songwriter. 
was a big fan of his early material, Aaliyah, Abby, Acacia, Adele. My best friend had been my sweet Maria. We did everything together. We sort of had to, as I couldn't drive car. We had met at a vending machine. The skittle she had purchased had gotten stuck, and so I had valiantly charged full speed into the machine to knock loose her captive candy and suffered a radial fracture in my forearm. My sweet Maria drove me to the hospital, and by the time my radius fully healed, she was driving me everywhere. I still had my cast. She signed it with Conamore and a big red heart. She never did get those skittles, though. I sometimes wondered who did late at night as my regrets salsa danced on my chest. It sure got lonesome in prison, especially for inmates like me who could never expect an intimate visit in a Banana Republic dressing room handicapped restrooms near the Cheesecake Factory. Sometimes in my free hour after work and before dinner, I would walk by the sweet-smelling kiosk girls at Perfumania and try to muster up the courage to ask them for a sample of cologne, but I never could. Not that it mattered. I knew that asking for a sample of cologne would never lead to an intimate visit in the handicapped restrooms near the Cheesecake Factory. It would only lead to me disappointing the Perfumania girls by not buying cologne or perfume. Some of the other inmates were able to meet women in the mall. Big Leonard was dating a sales girl at Bath and Body Works. Benny the Snake had regular liaisons with a 19-year-old who had recently started working at Piercing Pagoda. Juan Elrata Veracruz had one sweetheart in Stride Right Shoes and another in CVS. Of course, they were all con artists. Meeting girls was always easier for con artists even if they had ankle monitors that could potentially cause the mall PA to play Don Henley's The Boys of Summer. In the prison hierarchy, con artists were number one in meeting girls. Disgraced corporate executives and hedge fund managers were number two. I wasn't sure where exactly male defrauders fit in, but it was definitely near the bottom. How many girls read letters anymore? None that I knew. Letter reading, like mail fraud, was a dying art. We had a few disgraced corporate executives at Dayland. They sure had it easy. Even though they were disgraced, they were still able to pull all kinds of strings. Like, they only had to work half shifts at Hot Topic or Sunglass Hut. And they always got to pick the teams in prison dodgeball. And they could eat as many Churromania churros as they wanted. Didn't seem fair. One disgraced corporate executive had swindled shareholders out of several hundred million dollars and had bought a Caribbean island that he dynamited so it would look like the silhouette of Jane Mansfield from the air. 
I was lucky if some old lady from Boynton Beach mailed me back a crumpled 20. Who got punished more? Sure wasn't the disgraced corporate executive. He'd been disgraced for a couple of months. I'd been disgraced since the day I was born. Most people were in prison because they were poor and wanted to be rich, or because they were rich and wanted to be richer. I guess that was the problem with being rich. You can never tell when you were rich enough. I had never gotten rich though. I had never been very skilled at mail fraud. My sweet Maria hadn't been rich either. As a child, she had eaten cookies made of dirt and salt and vegetable shortening in Nicaragua. I sure wish I could have made her rich. And I tried, I really tried. But despite my best efforts, I landed in prison and she landed on the back seat of some macho's motorcycle. That didn't seem fair either. But what did seem fair? Not much. That was for sure. He'd run out of luck A ghost in the water Awake at the break of day I will decorate Let's fire up the metal And stab it right into my skin I will figure out The length of the world And walk it all the way to you Let's all sing along to smoke on the water, alive like a fairy tale. Fellow inmates and I decorated the mall with fake Douglas firs, artificial mistletoe, and tinsel in preparation for the imminent holidays. It was going to be my first Christmas in prison. The thought made me a little sad, but most of my thoughts made me a little sad. At least this year there would be no guesswork on which column contained my name on Santa's list. The warden, in addition to being a clothes hound and a grapefruit and haagen enthusiast, was an aficionado of all things Christmas. He strolled the tiled floors of Dadeland in December with a carol ever on his lips and an extra bounce in his step. Every year the warden organized an extravagant Christmas show in the open area near Michael Kors and Auntie Anne's pretzels. It was called the Dadeland Holiday Minimum Security Spectacular. Inmates reenacted the nativity and sang Handel's Messiah and performed selected scenes from A Christmas Carol, Miracle on 34th Street, and Die Hard. I had mixed feelings about Christmas. I liked all the colored lights people strung on their houses and around ficus and palm trees but I didn't like the presents. I had never gotten anything good for Christmas and had never given anyone anything good for Christmas. 
on TV around Christmas time, I'd always see these commercials where a man blindfolds his wife, walks her out to the garage, and then pulls off the blindfold to reveal a shiny new Lexus with a big red bow. Boy, those commercials made me feel lousy. What could I possibly buy my sweet Maria that could compete with a shiny new Lexus with a big red bow? Usually I bought her bath soap. I bet those disgraced corporate executives had bought a shiny new Lexus for a girl or two on Christmas though. One of the executives was going to be Joseph in the Mall Nativity reenactment, and another was going to be the Virgin Mary. No one was surprised. Those disgraced executives were always pulling strings. December was a funny time in Miami. The whole month seemed not quite real, like it was just a rehearsal for the real December, which would take place once everyone learned their marks and got fitted for their costumes and memorized their lines. It was hard to explain. Part of it, I think, was the Santas. They seemed so out of place, ho-ho-hoing, jingling their jingle bells, trying desperately to stay inside in the air conditioning for as long as possible. It was 80 degrees outside. South Florida outdoors was no place for a fat man in a red wool suit. At Dadeland, they used to let inmates with white beards work Santa details at Macy's. Old man Fabregaster was a Santa four years ago. He said sometimes you got thrown up on, but also sometimes you had college girls from FIU and UM and MDC Kendall get their pictures taken on your lap. But then parents noticed that the Santas at Macy's were wearing ankle monitors and started asking a lot of questions, and the Santa details were scrapped. Not that the replacement Santas were any better. Who knows where they found those sneaky bastards. They were all up to something. You could see it in their eyes. They just hadn't gotten caught yet. At Johnny Rockets, we added various Christmas medleys to our repertoire. We'd start off with White Christmas, then segue into Blue Christmas, then Merry Merry Christmas Baby, then Can This Be Christmas. People went crazy for Christmas songs. At Johnny Rockets, the customers would clap and stomp their feet and holler to high heaven every half hour on the half hour. The younger hedge fund embezzling tenor didn't share their enthusiasm, though. He hated Christmas music. His harmonies on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer were even more spiteful than usual. One of the songs we included in our Christmas medleys was It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Whoever wrote that song must have been real crazy about Christmas. Not only did he think Christmas was the most wonderful time of the year, he also thought it was the hap-happiest season of all. I didn't know about that, though. Christmas sure didn't feel like the hap-happiest season of all. 
I guess whoever wrote that song wasn't thinking about minimum security prison inmates when he wrote the song. Not that I blame him. No one thinks about minimum security prison inmates when they're writing Christmas songs. It's just human nature. Still, even the Dayland shoppers with their clean rap sheets and their Abercrombie and Fitch bags and their unmonitored ankles seem to have similar doubts that this was the hap-happiest season of all. They all looked so tired and haggard and hurried, rushing from store to store with trembling arms weighed down by heavy bags, the shoppers all shouting into cell phones, or at small children, or at convicted felons who had improperly prepared their cheeseburger, or falafel, or orange chicken. They looked nothing like the attractive models printed on the shoppers' bags. The models lived in a magical, faraway kingdom where everyone spent their days doing nothing but posing seductively on beaches and playing shirtless tackle football and rugby. It did wonders for the complexion, that sort of lifestyle. The model's skin was all perfect, unblemished, sepia tone. been at Dadeland for five months and was still having trouble sleeping. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how loudly and mellifluously Jean-Claude berated me in Creole, I couldn't shake the regrets salsa dancing on my chest. There was a prison psychologist who saw patients in the handbags and accessories section of J.C. Penney, but I never visited him. He had an incredibly shiny forehead he was always dabbing with a handkerchief. It made me real uneasy just watching him dab and dab at his forehead as he ate his Cajun grill in the food court. Who could trust someone like that with his innermost secrets? Not me. I wouldn't trust that psychologist with my soiled linens. I wouldn't trust that psychologist to prepare my shrimp etouffee at Cajun grill. I figured the only sure way to shake my insomnia and my regrets was to get my sweet Maria back from that macho from the DR, which was certainly easier said than done. After all, he had a motorcycle, and I had 22 more months of a 27-month sentence for mail fraud. There were ways to get these sorts of things done, though. One of the inmates incarcerated in Dayland was an old Colombian called El Padrino who worked a plum detail stocking bras and panties at Victoria's Secret and curried substantial influence both inside the prison and out. It was said he'd helped shave three years off the sentence of a repeat counterfeiter and had helped an aerosol fiend reconnect with his estranged son and had gotten a federally protected drug informant murdered in broad daylight with gardening shears. My thinking was, if I could somehow win favor with El Padrino, surely he could do something to get my sweet Maria to come visit me. If I could speak to her for five minutes, just five minutes. I'd rehearsed my speech a thousand times. 
I'd rehearsed it while staring at the traffic on the palmetto from the prison yard, and while providing exact change at Johnny Rockets, and while lying in bed with my regrets sashaying all over my ribcage, I'd say to her, my sweet Maria, I know I've done you wrong. I know I've done lots of people wrong. I know I've taken what wasn't mine to take, and bought what wasn't mine to buy, and frittered away what wasn't mine to fritter. But everything I've done, I've done it for you. My sweet Maria, you can say lots of things about me. You can say the things I've done for you have been foolish and short-sighted and reckless. You can say that I could have done other things for you that would have more effectively achieved the end results that were in no way achieved by the things I actually did for you. You can say that you would have been better off if I had never done anything for you at all, and you would probably be right. But you can't say that I don't care about you. You can't say that I don't love you. You can't say that I haven't been trying in my own foolish and short-sighted and reckless way to give you everything you've never had but have always deserved. And then I would take her in my arms and hold her tight and in the dressing room of Banana Republic or the handicapped restrooms near the Cheesecake Factory, she would be mine again. Of course, first things first, I had to become pals with El Padrino. How did one do that, exactly? In maximum security prison, I could have gained El Padrino's respect by shanking snitches and pedophiles, but in a minimum security facility, the path to prison-wide prominence was more ambiguous. I needed to sleep on it, but I couldn't sleep. Instead, I poked Jean-Claude in my regrets and failures did the salsa, or occasionally the bachata, a merengue. I bet that macho from the DR could dance the bachata and the merengue. Boy, did the thought of him dancing the merengue with my sweet Maria make me feel lousy. I bet he knew all kinds of flashy moves, too. I try not to think about it, but still, I thought about it. I was just no good at not doing things I was trying not to do.
week for all of us enrolled in educational courses in the food court. Prison lecturers sipped on celebratory mochaccinos and Johnny Rockets milkshakes, and TAs passed out number two pencils, teacher evaluations, and ominously heavy stapled exams. I had been hoping that somehow my survey of post-war Soviet literature final would be in English rather than Russian, but of course it was in Russian. A guy like me couldn't catch a break. As my classmates diligently tackled post-war Soviet literature's most pressing questions, I scribbled my favorite Cyrillic symbols in the white spaces of my exam handed my test to my professor and shook his hand. He stared at me warily. Who knows what I had been writing on all my tests and papers. Not me, that was for sure. I had never been a particularly good test taker. In high school, that's what all the dumb kids would say when they didn't want to say they were dumb. I'm just not a good test taker. But in my case, I really wasn't all that dumb. I was just absolute shit at taking tests. Lots of times I knew the right answer, but I'd bubble in the wrong oval, or I'd second-guess myself, or I'd accidentally skip a page and leave a quarter of the test questions blank. It was really something. I must have been the worst test taker of all time. School wouldn't have been so bad if all you had to do was learn stuff, but of course they had to go and make school one big competition. People were always doing that, ruining perfectly nice things by making them competitions. They were always telling me, why can't you dress as good as so-and-so, or cook as well as so-and-so, or smell as nice as so-and-so. Boy, did that make me feel lousy. My whole life, I was constantly losing competitions. I didn't even know I'd entered. Rehearsals had started for the Dateland Holiday Minimum Security Spectacular. On weekends, we gathered in the prison yard after lunch and practiced our carols and handle oratorio and reenactment of the birth of Christ. The warden was a perfectionist and had us sing the hallelujah chorus again and again as the disgraced corporate executive Joseph and Mary walked from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Nazareth to Bethlehem and the church collection box burglar playing Ebenezer Scrooge endlessly inquired, are there no prisons? The warden sure took the minimum security spectacular seriously. Whenever he wasn't cueing the wise men, or shouting Scrooge's lines, or singing an alto melisma from Handel's Messiah, he was sucking greedily on a ruby red grapefruit. There were grapefruit rinds all over the roof, the parking lot. We had to clean them up before every prison kickball game due to concerns over player safety. When not rehearsing for the minimum security spectacular or handling customer transactions at Chick-fil-A and Johnny Rockets or absorbing the dance steps of my regrets, I was brainstorming ways to gain entry into El Padrino's inner circle. 
wasn't going to be easy. El Padrino only helped those who could help him in return. And what possible help could I be to El Padrino? If El Padrino had enjoyed a 50s doo-wop, I might have been able to sing my way into his good graces. But I had it on good authority. He was dismissive of all genres of music outside of cumbia. I asked the codeine trafficking baritone if he could teach me any cumbia songs, and he said he didn't know any, but he could teach me a great guaguanco version of Sweet Home Alabama. I respectfully declined his offer. The guaguanco, regardless of his virtues, would never bring my sweet Maria back to me, and neither would Sweet Home Alabama. heard that lots of people off themselves around Christmas time. If it is true, it seems funny that a crummy old holiday with flying reindeer and fat bearded men and tinsel could affect anyone's decision on whether or not to go on living, but who knows? There are probably a million good reasons to not go on living. I guess sometimes all those reasons just sort of pile up dumbest reason of them all ends up becoming the last straw. Not too many inmates off themselves in minimum security prison, but it happens. My first week in prison, an alcoholic NASCAR pace car driver tried to slit his own throat at the art of shaving. He missed the carotid artery and survived, but that was a little consolation to the alcoholic pace car driver. His NASCAR career was over. He'd driven his pace car, bombed on wild turkey at Talladega, and had made it through one incredibly erratic caution lap before smashing into the pit road wall. Even though I got awful lonesome in prison, I never seriously considered offing myself. I didn't have the stomach for it. Most people don't. Most people tend to want to keep on living, even when living is exhausting and heartbreaking and joyless. People who don't have a reason to live keep living all the time. Don't ask me why. It's just human nature. I did sometimes wonder what my funeral would be like, though, if I offed myself. I wondered what Bible passages they would read and what pictures of me they would display next to the condolence book, and if there would even be a condolence book, and what kinds of snacks they would serve at the reception. But mostly, I wondered if my sweet Maria would come to my funeral. I wondered if she would think I offed myself because of my conviction for mail fraud, or because of her, or a combination of both. I wondered if she would have the audacity to bring that macho from the DR to my funeral, and if he would have the audacity to bring his Burmese python. Boy, the thought of that Dominican helping himself to the snacks at my funeral reception made me mad. Probably wouldn't be any snacks, though. Probably wouldn't be any funeral. Who's going to spend 6,000 big ones to toss me into some hole in the ground? No one. That's who. They'd stuff me in a box and fry me up and dump my ashes with the banana peels and the coffee grounds. And that would be that.
sorry for myself, but I know I shouldn't have. Lots of inmates had it worse than I did. Many had been in maximum security facilities for 10, 20, 30 years and had only been in dateland for the tail end of their sentences, preparing themselves for the day they could walk into the parking lot with no fear of hearing Don Henley. There were inmates who'd had parents grow old and die while they were in prison and had watched the fall of Gaddafi and the Twin Towers and the Berlin Wall on prison televisions and had learned about the dissolution of their native countries via offhand comments by prison guards and had conceived sons and daughters they'd never seen. The inmates at Dadeland could tell you all kinds of sad stories. Benny the Snake, prior to becoming a payday loan collection scammer, had worked at a butcher shop in Apalaka and had won several regional churrasco offs until his right hand got torn up by a meat grinder. No Face Vasquez had been married to the 1993 Miss Hialeah Teen USA, but many mistakes and several counts of grand larceny later, he had lost her to an ex-Navy SEAL who ran a successful landscaping business and told No Face in no uncertain terms that the SEAL would break every bone in his body if he ever contacted his ex-wife or their daughter Felicidad. Again, Big Leonard, before he started swindling Boca retirees and grieving widows, had served in the U.S. Infantry in Fallujah and Tikrit. He never told his sad stories, but we knew he had them. He screamed to high heaven every night in his sleep. It made me feel real lousy for feeling lousy when I'd hear stories like Benny the Snakes and No Face Vasquez's and wake up to Big Leonard crying out for air support at 3 o'clock in the morning. But what could I do? Just because my life wasn't quite as hopeless and desolate as their lives didn't make me feel all rosy and sprightly. Just because my right hand had never been torn up by a meat grinder didn't make my life all peaches and cream. I think part of the reason I felt so lousy was the time I spent with my sweet Maria. If my life had always been lousy, I could have accepted the inherent lousiness of life as a given and dutifully soldiered on without complaint. But instead, my sweet Maria had shown me how truly not lousy life could be. I spent a lot of time thinking about the early days with my sweet Maria, when my radial fracture was still healing and our love was still blossoming and my arrest and conviction for mail fraud was still a couple of years down the line. Boy, were those some nice times. My sweet Maria and I lounging lazily in her bed and watching the lizards dart nervously around her apartment and listening to Spanish-language radio on Sunday drives to the beach and feeding fruit salad and mixed vegetables and cheese to the manatees in the little river. I wish I could have somehow bottled and preserved those moments 
those feelings, saved them for a time when I desperately needed to conjure my sweet Maria's cheek against my cheek, her hand in my hand, her tongue on my tongue, her naked belly against mine. But that's not how things worked. You couldn't bottle time. You couldn't do anything with time, really. Time was a river with a strong current pulling you inescapably toward the sea. Sometimes it was peaceful, sometimes it was raging, and sometimes there was a hundred-foot waterfall up ahead, and there wasn't a damn thing you could do about it. But usually, you didn't even see the waterfall. One second you were floating along, taking in the pleasant scenery, everything as nice as can be, and the next second you were breathless, plummeting down, 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 down. Boy, time sure could be a real bastard, if you asked me. Time could be a real son of a bitch. Fireworks in the sky, let's pretend they're for just you and I. were sprinting from store to store and lugging their own weight and 
gift-wrapped macadamia nuts and waiting refugee-faced and endless serpentine checkout lines. At noon, we commenced the Dadeland Holiday Minimum Security Spectacular, a thrice-convicted cockfight impresario singing Little Drummer Boy in a sweet falsetto, but no one stopped to listen. Everyone had somewhere to be. No one had time for a spectacular. The warden didn't seem to care that no one was paying attention to us, though. He was enthralled. He was clapping his hands and jumping around and sucking on his grapefruits like no one's business. We reenacted the nativity and sang Handel's Messiah and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and danced to Santa Baby in a chorus line and performed pivotal scenes of Home Alone and It's a Wonderful Life. For the spectacular's grand finale, each of the inmates lit a white candle and sang Oh Holy Night as a compulsive public masturbator in swaddling clothes placed a glittering gold star on the top of an artificial Douglas fir. Boy did the warden get a big ol' kick out of the grand finale. He was crying like a baby. The gold star glinting and gleaming on the tree. We finished off the final chorus of Oh Holy Night and then the prison guards retrieved all of our costumes and choir robes and extinguished and collected our candles. Some of us were in for arson. You can never be too careful. On Christmas Eve, the mall closed at six, right after our communal dinner in the food court. In the spirit of the season, we were allowed any variety of bread we wanted at Subway and were allotted three churros at Churromania instead of the customary two. By the end of dinner, the shoppers had all headed home and we had the entire prison yard to ourselves for the annual Christmas Eve Prisoners vs. Prison Guards kickball game. We thumped the guards by 40 points. The games had apparently never been very competitive. The prison guards were absolute shit at kickball. I couldn't sleep at all that night. I poked and poked Jean-Claude and he castigated me for hours in Creole, but still I lay awake, my regrets and failures doing the salsa, the rumba, the cumbia, the wawanko. When I was a little kid, I had lain awake on Christmas Eve in anticipation of Santa and his reindeer and his sack full of transformers and tinker toys and plastic wrapped candy. But this Christmas, I was kept awake not by anticipation, but by anxiety and dread. How was I ever going to get my sweet Maria to come back to me? How was I going to win her from the macho? How was I ever going to gain the trust and admiration of El Padrino? The morning came, and I was so exhausted I finally fell asleep mid-lather in the showers. Boy, that hot water sure felt nice. I couldn't sleep for long, though. The guards kicked me awake before I could even start to dream and helped me dress myself after I kept passing out while trying to put on my polo shirt and skinny chinos. In prison, nothing nice ever lasted. 
not even on Christmas. The warden was a real stickler for water conservation. Though the mall was closed on Christmas Day, inmates' families were allowed to visit between lunch and dinner. Our families were allowed to bring us presents, but nothing could be wrapped, and everything had to be inspected by guards for contraband. Benny the Snake's mom brought Benny the self-help book, One-Handed in a Two-Handed World. Big Leonard's mom brought Big Leonard a three-dimensional puzzle of St. Petersburg's Church of Our Savior on the spilled blood. The lunch meat spokesman's sister brought the spokesman one pound of knockwurst that had been wrapped in butcher paper signed by 300 members of the spokesman's fan club until prison guards tore off the butcher paper while searching the knockwurst for improprieties. No one brought me anything. I sat in the food court watching the other inmates celebrate Christmas with their families and listening to the codeine trafficking baritone perform his latest compositions. Lacey, Leticia, Layla, Louise. My sweet Maria and I had spent three Christmases together. We hadn't done anything particularly special. We usually just ate at Chinese places and lounged around in her bed and watched the lizards dart around the ceiling and the walls. I sure wish I could have done something special, though. I wish I could have blindfolded my sweet Maria like in the commercials and revealed to her a shiny new Lexus with a big red bow. But that was never going to happen. I was never going to have anything worth blindfolding my sweet Maria for, that was for sure. I know the true meaning of Christmas is supposed to be peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind and all that, but Christmas still made me feel awful lousy, goodwill or no goodwill. My favorite holiday had always been Halloween. For one day, I got to be someone who wasn't me. Boy, how I wished sometimes that every day could be Halloween. Boy, how I wished sometimes I could not be me forever. After Christmas dinner, the warden wished us a happy holiday and announced that he unfortunately had some sad news. He said that El Padrino had suffered a massive coronary in the handicapped restrooms near the Cheesecake Factory and had been pronounced dead by prison doctors on the spot. What the warden didn't announce was that El Padrino had been receiving an intimate visit from a distant cousin who pole danced under the name Susia Sanchez at Bare Necessities just a few blocks down US-1. Who knows how long it took for Susia to realize El Padrino was dead. He was notoriously lazy. Everyone knew he made his intimate visitors do all the work. Well, if Christmas wasn't already lousy enough, El Padrino's death certainly made it a real shit show. 
now I had no idea how I was going to get my sweet Maria to come back to me. It looked like I was going to have to wait another 22 months before I could leave Dadeland with my ankle unmonitored and track her and her motorcycle riding macho down myself. How was I going to make it another 22 months? Almost two more years of zombie walking past the same stores and singing the same doo-wop and eating the same kind of bread at Subway and staring at the same motivational Grateful Dead poster in my cell. Why couldn't have El Padrino looked after his health better? Why couldn't he have avoided strenuous physical activity and limited his consumption of high cholesterol foods? Since the day I was born, I swear to God, I couldn't catch a single break. I thought about how nice my Christmas would have been if my sweet Maria had visited me and brought me soap, or shampoo, or a set of big pens, and it made me feel sick. I sure wished I could forget about her. I wished I could muster up the courage to talk to one of those sweet-smelling perfumania girls and ask for a sample of cologne and finally start my life's next chapter. But my life had stopped having chapters a long while back. It just kind of went on and on, nothing really happening, just blah, 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 blah. My life needed a better author. That was for sure. But what could I do? Nothing. I couldn't do a damn thing. Now wasn't that the truth? It wasn't really worth it to escape from Dadeland. Most of us were nearing the ends of our sentences and if we got caught, we'd get another one to five years and a good long stay in the hole and a work detail in some place awful like Kids Foot Locker or the Apple Store or Champ Sports. But still, every now and then, the boys of summer would come on the mall PA and we'd stop whatever we were doing and look at each other and wonder, hey, do you think maybe that sorry son of a bitch is actually going to make it? But no one ever made it. The guards had golf carts. They were usually tasing the poor bastard in the parking lot by the time Don Henley reached the second verse. I still thought about escaping, though, from time to time. On sleepless nights, during endless shifts, in nostalgic reverie on the roof of the parking garage, I envisioned myself walking into the parking lot and setting off the boys of summer and finding my sweet Maria waiting for me outside the Cheesecake Factory in her Mitsubishi Galant, whisking me away from the guards and their golf carts to a new life and some faraway tropical paradise where shirtless men play tackle football and rugby and sepia-toned beauties pose provocatively on the beach. I knew I was never going to escape, though. I knew my sweet Maria would never be waiting for me outside the Cheesecake Factory in her Mitsubishi Galant. 
I knew Jean-Claude would never get his green card, and No-Face Vasquez would never see his daughter again, and Benny the Snake would never regain the use of his mangled hand, and Big Leonard would never stop screaming in his sleep, and the little river manatees would never tell the Snapper Creek manatees what a great and generous guy I was back when my sweet Maria and I were happy and in love and sitting cross-legged together at the banks of the canal. That Burmese python might still strangle that macho from the DR, though. It wasn't impossible. And so I stood at the edge of the yard and watched the traffic on the palmetto and waited. It was something to look forward to, and I needed something to look forward to. That was for sure. Look, I didn't mean to make a scene when you told me our love was through, but I didn't want to let you go, go, I didn't want to let you go. And you said. Thank you.